The Tower of Babel The Promise to Abraham The Sons Ishmael and Isaac The Birth of Covenants Every one of these events is an announcement, a declaration of who God is and how He treats His people as the Word of God has stood the test of time, these records are still a revelation. So children are a beautiful blessing, are they not? So uh, we, we almost had an Eagles fight song uh, going on in first service as we read Isaiah 40, 31, as, as strength rises on the wings of eagles, and then we sang the song, and, and there was a lot of cheering for the eagles. So uh, I, I know what territory we are in, and that's where I know I'm a foreigner and a stranger and an alien on this earth. It's because I live near Philadelphia. So uh, having said that, it's good to have you here this morning, and we're going to be in the Word of God in Genesis chapter 16. And so I'd love for you to turn there uh, to be prepared for where we're going to be at. So if you are new here, let me just give context. Uh, we're teaching through the book of Genesis right now. It's the first book of the Bible. And we believe that Genesis gives us context for understanding our faith. Why, why would we need to follow after someone in history that gave up their life, died on a cross, and then there's a claim of being resurrected on the third day? Why would you ever do that? Genesis gives us the understanding, gives us context. But Genesis gives us context for a lot of what's going on in the world. And today, quite frankly, you're gonna find a lot of the current events in, that's going on in the world being spoken of very specifically in the text we're going to be in today in Genesis 16. And so we're, this won't be hopefully lost upon you by the end, and you'll understand where I'm going with this. But uh, last week, we were looking at when the covenant was given with Abraham, all, what the significance is, uh, of, of that covenant is, is that Abraham was told, you're going to be the father of many nations, and the, all nations will be blessed because of you. And so with that covenant, and you got the Abrahamic covenant, you have Noah's covenant, you have Moses' covenant, David's covenant, and then ultimately the new covenant, which speaks to all the covenants coming together, all point to that one, the new covenant being that it, by Jesus and Jesus alone, things can be reconciled, people can be reconciled with each other, but most importantly, to God himself. And so today, we're going to be looking at a covenant that has not been mentioned yet, and yet it's increasingly becoming evident of its realities. And so we're going to go there today in Genesis 16, but before I go there, I have to give context so that we can fully appreciate the very first verse in chapter 16. When Abram was called, and again, that's his original name before he was given the name Abraham, which we'll talk about next week. When Abram and then his wife Sarai, who will become Sarah, and we'll talk about that next week, when they left the land that they were living in, surrounded by all their family, in the safety of being among many, God calls them to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and says, there is where I'm going to make you into this great nation. 
And so they left to go there. And at the time of their arrival in Canaan, Abram turned 75 years old. And his wife, being nine years younger, would have been 66 years old. And so they're coming into this land of promise. They're now in a land where they are the only family. They have just a few members around them, some servants and so on. But they are vulnerable to all the family groups and the, and the nation groups around them in Canaan. So they are in a very risky context. And they are there awaiting this fulfillment. Okay, so they've been faithful. They've arrived and they've done everything that God has asked of them. Now they're there. God's allowing them to live and not be taken over and conquered by another nation. But 10 years go by. 10 years, and they still do not have a child. So how can it be that this covenant that God spoke of them becoming a blessing to all nations and, and having nations come from their own womb, how is that possible when 10 years have gone by. I mean, he was old to begin with, but now he's gotten much older. And so at this point, Abraham is, is now 85 years old. And do the math and drop nine, and you've got, you know, you've got Sarah that is 76 years old. It's not looking so good. I mean, some of you probably are within the ages of those times. Now, last service, I made the mistake and had those people that are near those ages raise their hands. I realized by the look of horror on their faces that was a bad idea. So I'm not gonna do that now. But you could probably look around the room and figure out people that are ages 76 and 85 or close to. And if you were to say that the hope of the future of our nation is their offspring that are yet to be born, how confident would you feel? I mean, it's, it's not exact. I mean, choose me. I mean, I'm in my 50s. If you were to say, yeah, I'm gonna make you into a great nation if I had not had no children, that's not exactly something that would create confidence in me. So they arrived at age 75 and 66, and now they're 86 and 85, or 75, and there's still no child. You're probably thinking, you know, if you're them, you rightfully would be thinking, did God forget about us? Maybe we did something that, that God didn't like, and so now he's removed it. Or perhaps we missed part of the instruction. So regardless of whatever their thoughts were, patience had worn out. And to be fair to them, I get it. So I do not think lightly of Sarah or Abraham for the state of mind they're in, but they make a colossal error in response to their impatience. So let's begin with verse one of Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, uh, Abraham's, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Let me stop there. So, 10 years, living by faith, but very vulnerable. The, the biological clock has more than ticked and, and sounded the alarm that time's up. 
But in the journey of their questioning and their impatience, it's not the emotions of feeling like God has possibly forgotten them or that maybe they had done something to make God angry or that maybe they had missed a particular instruction given to them. I think God would be okay with those thoughts and emotions. It was the fact that based on those facts and emotions, they created a plan and didn't present the plan to God. I think that was the major error, is that because it was a cultural norm that if you're childless, that, that, that if you're the barren woman, that you can choose a servant or a slave that is in your household to become the one by whom you'll build your family through. So if that servant or slave was to have children, those children actually become yours, not the servant or slaves. And so that was a cultural norm. So for her to propose this was not a strange idea. But it was to propose it to Abram and not to propose it to God. So then she proposes it to Abram. And he's thinking immediately, you don't see any hesitation on Abram's part. He's done life with Sarai. They've gone on this journey from a place of familiarity and safety and security to this place of vulnerability and and risk. And they've done this together. And so a trusted voice speaks. He doesn't even question whether or not the actual words are in alignment with God. This is where Matthew Henry makes a comment in response to this moment. And he says this. He says, temptation is most dangerous when it is sent by a hand that is least expected. Now what does that mean? Too often... We build relationships with each other. We, we grow to trust a, you know, certain individuals. And when they speak, you just immediately, because of your trust for them, you just take their words for gospel. And what you're hearing from Matthew Henry, who is a commentarian from quite a few uh, years ago, what he's saying is that, you know, in this case, the greater risk for Abram was to have bad advice come from somebody he trusted. How often might we be guilty of trusting somebody's character to a fault that when they speak something towards us or into us, that we don't take it to the Lord. We just take it as being automatically absolute and good. You know, I don't think it's wise on your part, even if you find me to be a trustworthy preacher, to just assume that everything I say is absolutely right and perfect. That's why we put the word of God in your hands so that together we can go to the text and there be mutual submission to one another. And that's why when something is said, and it might be confusing, sometimes it could be that on your end, you didn't hear it correctly. Sometimes it's on my end, I didn't realize what I said. And so therefore, in that mutual accountability, we get to the right place of truth. Always going before the Lord, letting the Lord's word be what's authoritative. That, I believe, is healthy. In the same way, if I was to speak something to you that is necessary, it's just a charge to you, that I give from out of myself to you, that's not necessarily in scripture, but maybe uh, you could make a case it's not against biblical, you have the right and you should take the right to test it before the Lord. 
That's what our calling is. And Abram, in this case, did not question the words given from a faithful wife. And as a result, they operated under a false set of guidelines that was going to create harm and challenges for generations. Let's continue reading what happens in chapter 16. So the end of chapter four, after she had conceived, she, when she knew she was, uh, chapter 16, verse four, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave into your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abram responds, your slave is in your hands. Do with, with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So let me make this statement. They make the decision to go their own way and to kind of create a path. Because again, it's been 10 years. 10 years of waiting. There could be a, a slew of reasons as to why nothing's happened thus far. But to not consult God was basically to say, we're gonna take matters into our own hands. And this is where the statement comes in that I would like for you to, to hear. Helping God out by taking matters into your own hands leads to foreseen and unforeseen consequences. It's true. When you look at somebody that takes matters into their own hands and trying to help God out, depending on what the context of that matter is, you can see it's like, oh, there's some logical foreseen consequences. You can, you can say, yeah, that's likely to happen. That's likely to happen. But there are also things that you would never guess to be also the case. Let's talk about the foreseeable consequences. What happens immediately after this? Hagar gets pregnant. And, you know, Hagar's feeling pretty good. I'm the blessed one. I got pregnant. Sarai, my mistress, like, she's never been able to get pregnant. So I'm the one with honor. And so she begins to mistreat Sarai. Sarai feeling angry about this context and how things have switched. And it's probably humiliating for her. Goes to her husband. And what does she do? She blames him. You have brought this on to me. Forget whose idea it started with, but you brought this on to me. Now you need to fix it. So foreseeable consequences are this. Of course, these women are not gonna get along like they used to. You can't share a man and think it's gonna go well. TV shows start up with this storyline and it doesn't go well. And we watch it in curiosity for how it even happens and how it can work and it doesn't work. So what happens here when they create this idea of, of an alternate path to fulfilling God's covenant, immediately there's now a divided household. And Abram now has to navigate what was once peaceful is now tentious. Blame is happening. And Abram, you can just kind of see, he's like, hey, I don't want anything to do with this. This is, use your idea. You know, was, you can kind of get that feeling about him. So what does he do? To appease, he simply says to Sarai, do as you wish. I'll, I'll let you do as you wish with Hagar. 
So, of course, Sarai mistreated Hagar, and Hagar then flees. So let's, be, let's pick this up in verse 7 with what happens. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And, she, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God intervenes. Now, in this situation, God has already said to Abram, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. That's the covenant that he's had with Abraham. Abraham's been walking with faithfulness to that end, but then decides to create an alternate opportunity for this to be fulfilled by taking on a second wife through Hagar. But now it's become a mess. There's division in the household. But God speaks first in correction and intervention to the one who is fleeing and who is at most risk. And he speaks to Hagar. And what he says to her is a covenant. It will happen because God's the one who speaks. First he says, your child's going to be a son. And the son will receive the name Ishmael, which means God hears. But it also says he will be, and depending on your translation in the NIV, it says he'll be a wild donkey of a man. In other words, it's basically saying he's going to be a handful. Now, we just dedicated several children here. Could you imagine if one of the parents said, he's already a handful? And I said, well, let's pray that he'll be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> that would not be received very well by any parent. But she hears this in a very desperate context. She's in the desert. She's alone. She is going to die. If we would read on, you will discover that she was in a, in a place where there were vulnerability was likely. She thought she was going to die. And now she's being told that you will live and that this child will be born. He'll be a son. And you're to name him Ishmael because God has heard your cry. But he is going to be a handful and you need to know, he is going to be against everyone, and everyone's going to be against him. And a further declaration and clarification, he is going to be living in hostility to those who are related to him. And this is speaking of the coming child that has not yet been born, Isaac that will be his brother, that the seed of Isaac and the seed of Ishmael will always be in a hostile context because Ishmael will be hostile towards Isaac. Said by God, declared by God, 
and therefore covenanted by God, and it will happen. Now, let's speak to what is unforeseen consequences. Hagar was relieved because she was going to live. And so she goes back to submit to Sarai. But now begins the journey of the unforeseen consequences. That Abraham and Sarah could have never seen or foreseen to happen as a result of their decision. So here they are. The unforeseen consequences of helping God out without his consent. First of all, Ishmael does become the father of several nations. And in particular, the Genesis does list all his sons in Genesis chapter 25, verses 13 and 14. And by the way, he had 12 sons. Some of you may not realize that. And just like Isaac's son Jacob had 12 sons that we now know as the, the 12 tribes of Israel, which was Jacob's changed name, Israel. You see here that Ishmael also has 12 sons. And these sons, we can follow them. It even says in scripture where they settle. And we know by following genealogies where they have settled and stayed. That when you look at where the offspring of Ishmael have landed, they fill the Arabian Peninsula, which primarily is filled with Saudi Arabia and other Arabic countries that surround Saudi Arabia. The Sinai Peninsula as well. And reaching as far north into what we know as Gaza. Now your ears perked up, right? We are realizing now, maybe, that the covenant that God gave to Ishmael in this moment is still playing out to this day. That the covenant God had with Abraham and the covenant that God was gonna have with Isaac and that God was going to have with Jacob, that now you're seeing the covenant made with Ishmael playing itself out. Everyone will be against you and you'll be against everyone. And in particular, you will be hostile to your brothers, which is Isaac. So you have this whole conflict that is going on now around this region of the world. And by the way, if you were to look up the direct location of where this covenant is given to Hagar in the desert, it is just to the west, I mean to the east and south of where current Gaza is. So all of these things come about full circle and cycle. What you're going to discover is that because these two covenants, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant with Ishmael, that the two covenants create an animosity. Ishmael his, is against his brothers. Why? Because he was the firstborn, and it was taken away from him, the birthright. And he, therefore, is, as they describe, that his offspring will always be at war or, or unfavor with the world. And particularly hostile towards the seed of Isaac. There are different periods of peace between Ishmael's household and Isaac's household. We see that the two of them actually got to bury Abraham together. Might be the one and only time after they separate that this actually happens. But the first conflict that happens between Isaac and Ishmael actually happens when Isaac is three years old. 
In Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, when it was official that Isaac was being weaned off of his mother, at three years old, Ishmael, the 16-year-old, begins to mock Isaac. This is the first time where you see a direct conflict between the two brothers. Ishmael, 16 years old, Isaac, three, and the 16-year-old is mocking the one that he knows the promise is going to. At this point, it became evident that they need to separate, and God separates them. And in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 to 21, God reestablishes his covenant with Ishmael, saying, you will be protected, you will live, but you're going to be relegated to the desert areas so that I can save and spare Israel. So that's why you find the, the, the offspring of Ishmael being in the desert areas to the south, but always in hostility to their brothers and rarely finding union or some kind of solidarity with any other country in the world. Always desiring, always despised, always in hostility, even to this day. Some of you might think that what we're experiencing in Israel right now between Israel and Hamas or Israel and Gaza is something new. What happens is you see, if you were to look over the history of the two, Isaac and Ishmael's offspring, that it has high peaks of intensity and then it goes down to a simmering low, but it never goes away. We are just experiencing a peak right now between Ishmael and Isaac. The two covenants are at play and they will be fulfilled. And so there will be hostility between Israel and Ishmael. It will happen. But how then do we approach the statement in Psalm 122 where we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? How do we understand that? How can we do so if you're saying that there's a covenant that is always, and it's going to stand as a covenant that will always happen, that Ishmael and Isaac will be at war with each other? How do we approach this, knowing that we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is where I'd like to say something from my heart to those of you who are listening. If you have been feeling over the last few weeks more about fear in regards to what's going on in Israel and Palestine and not bent in prayer, appealing to the peace of God to be made evident there, then I would tell you, you need to understand the new covenant. Yes, there are two covenants at play between Ishmael and Isaac, Israel and the Arab world. And nothing will resolve that because it is, a, it is a covenant established by God except for a higher covenant. And we need to cling to this covenant more than anything else so that when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's through the eyes and the lens of the new covenant that we now have in Jesus Christ. So let's read starting in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcisions, 
which is done by, in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. Sound familiar? So he's destroying the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. People, do you realize what I just read is the news that the world needs to hear more than ever? We want peace for Jerusalem. We want peace for Israel. We want peace even for the Palestinian people that have been ruled by a tyrant group. But this peace will never be lasting unless it's by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the two covenants at play cannot be resolved by a political option. No answer of man will create peace in Israel. Only the God who gave the covenants through the new covenant can provide peace between Israel and the world. And so four things that are stated here about Jesus Christ as the only answer to peace are stated here. First of all, and the first thing to say is that Gentiles, we Gentiles who were without hope and without God was our beginning. The promises were through Abraham and to Israel. So the Gentiles were outside of it. We did not have the hope for peace that was promised to Abraham. But as God said to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to the nations. You'll be a blessing to all the nations. That blessing came through Jesus. And so we are brought near. Us Gentiles then are brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that which separated Jew and Gentile, the, all the hope and the covenants were with the Jews, with the good side of the covenant. But then through that, Jesus Christ, the new covenant, who is the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the line of Judah, through David's line, and yes, comes to this earth sinless and lives a life that God meant for Adam to live then dies a death not due him, and by his blood became the perfect lamb and sacrifice for us. And so that which separated us, Jew and Gentile, now is reconciled by the blood of Christ. And number three, Jesus then becomes our peace. That's what we're all wanting right now. Jesus becomes our peace, making the two warring groups, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac and the rest of the world, the two warring groups becoming one 
by destroying the wall of hostility. That is Jesus' promise. I have come by my blood. That which separates you now can become a blessing by my blood. That the, the blessing that has come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and through Jesus Christ can then be destroy that which separates us. And by the way, those of us here in this room, most of us are Gentiles. And so too are the Palestinians. They are in need of Jesus as much as we were in need of Jesus. They have as much hope for the gospel of Jesus Christ as we have hope for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we find right now is Israel still has acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. And as a result, they're operating maybe not in all the best ways, but we do bless Israel. We bless the promises of Abraham, but we advance peace, not through political terms. We advance it through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so this is what we preach now, is the message of peace that is found in Christ alone. Let's not perform the same mistake of Abram and Sarai by using, in the name of Jesus, strategies of the world to address a conflict that's in the world. Let's ask for his guidance and promote his peace because helping him out on our terms is a bad idea. Let's pray. So Father God, as the church as we pray for Israel, as we pray for peace for Israel, for Jerusalem, we recognize that peace will not come except by Jesus himself. We recognize that there are covenants at play that you've established that can only be fulfilled more fully through the covenant of Jesus. And only there can we find peace. And we know that Jesus, when he returns, will bring that peace that has been fleeting for generations. We recognize that what is going on in Israel grieves our hearts. What happened several weeks ago horrifies us. What happens during war, no matter what war, grieves our hearts because so much calamity happens in war. But Lord, we recognize that the promises given to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. And we recognize that's where peace can be found. And we pray for the gospel to be found and rooted in the hearts of every Jew on the face of this earth. That they can discover that the Messiah has come and it's Jesus. And we pray for the fellow Gentiles. We who are Gentiles who have been grafted in by the gospel, we pray for the Gentiles that are in Palestine that have followed after a false God. They followed after false leaders and they've been led astray. May they discover the truth that is found in Jesus because they're only there can they find peace. Lord, this is beyond us, but until you come again, we have this message. May this message grow in us to this day. Amen. Well, it's such a gift to be able to rest in the truth that God is in control, that the battle has been won, and that we as his church know the end of the story. So let's stand, let's proclaim and affirm that truth, rest in God's control.
There's hope that's in the blood And there's future grace that's mine today That Jesus Christ has won So I can face tomorrow For tomorrow's in your hands And all I need you will provide Just like you always have
if you know Jesus, you can sing that song. We don't have to operate in fear. We don't have to wonder about what's our security because we know where we're secure. We're secure in our founding in Jesus Christ. We're part of a family of God. And he said, when he gives us the spirit, it is a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance. And so we know how the story ends. Until then, it's God working out these covenants. And we can look on it with, with a very clear perspective as those on this side of the cross. And we know that which is dividing them can only be reconciled by the return of Christ himself. And so when I pray Psalm 122 for the peace of Jerusalem, I think of this, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, which is a very common verse said during this season of the year, when it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He said, while standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, he will return in the same way he came. And so he is right there. He is going to return to Jerusalem. And when the Prince of Peace returns to Jerusalem, the peace that has been fleeting since these covenants were established will be made whole in one single moment because the Prince of Peace arrives. The question is, is that Prince of Peace your prince? Is your life given to that Prince of Peace? Because without it, you will only know fear and you will have no hope. But with Jesus, you can know how the story ends and it gives security in our step. And then when we pray, we're praying for Israel. We know that God is going to bless Israel. We know that. But God has also said through Israel, he's going to bless all nations, which includes the Palestinians. And so we pray differently. We pray knowing, yes, God bless Israel, but God bring the hope that comes through Israel to the nations that surround them because only by that peace can they find peace in Israel. And it comes through Jesus alone. We would love for you to experience that very peace in your life. And if you would like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you and introduce you to the Prince of Peace. Until then, we release all of you out these doors to give hope where there is no hope, to be a light where there is no light, and to provide peace when people are filled with angst about what's going on in Israel, to help them know there is one we can pray to who cares about Israel and who cares to bring peace there that is lasting to all Gentiles. Amen? God bless you. May this week be filled with peace for you.